hearts to the word of the Lord now. You know, there are, um, there are times when uh, the Lord's timing is calibrated to bring us to our wit's end. Uh, you, you guys remember when Lazarus got sick and, uh, and Jesus sort of dilly-dallied so that he would die. Why? Well, partly for effect, right? Uh, he waited intentionally so that he might show forth his power and glory, raising him from the dead. And that's, that's exactly what's going on in Egypt. The Israelites, and even Moses himself, thinks that God is dilly-dallying at their expense. And they don't like it. You may recall last week how the children of Israel went from elation to depression so fast, from worshiping God to cursing Moses and Aaron in his name, all because life got hard. Pharaoh said no, just like God said he would. But God didn't mention the pain. God didn't mention the pointless toil or the beatings. Pharaoh got nasty, life got hard, and their faith crumbled. And as we open the Word of God together this morning, we'll we're going to find that even Moses himself is frustrated with the Lord's timing. And that's where we're going. Look, there is nothing that you and I can do about the Lord's timing. <laughs> but, we, but how we handle it, how we handle the waiting, that's what's in view in our passage this morning. We're finishing up the, the chapter 5 in Exodus. Uh, we left off right before the end of the chapter. There's just two verses left. So we're in Exodus 5, verse 22. If you have a got, copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find Exodus 5, 22. So the people have just cursed Moses and Aaron in the name of the Lord. Then Moses turns to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered, delivered your people at all. So he, he comes to the Lord and he asks why. We do that a lot, don't we? Just like Moses here. Why have you done this people harm? I wouldn't overread that word evil. Um, it's not a moral evil necessarily. It's just, it's bad. Why did you bring badness on this people? Why did you bring this people harm? And, and why did you send me? I went in your name. And ever since I did, Pharaoh has hurt us, and you haven't done anything. So you sort of expect a rebuke here, don't you? First of all, things had proceeded exactly like God said they would. Uh, he didn't mention the extra work in the beatings, but he did say that Pharaoh wouldn't let them go unless he was compelled by a mighty hand. You remember that, right? So what's Moses' beef? So you almost expect a rebuke. I say almost. Uh, you don't get a rebuke, and we know why. It's because the Lord is long-suffering toward us. 
Lord wouldn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Moses is a disciple. His faith is to be honed for sure. He he needs to grow, but he's a child of God. And under the Father's discipling hand, he doesn't need a rebuke right now. He's already low. He needs encouragement. And that's what our Father has for him. Now, there's no rebuke, but there's no answer either. You know, why, why, the why, why, whynessness that we're known for. God ignores all of those questions. They're not pertinent. Moses has not been sent to persuade Pharaoh. He hasn't failed. Exactly what was supposed to happen, happened. So God doesn't answer the questions. He just encourages him. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And it's kind of interesting the way that's worded here. Um, God had already said that Pharaoh would not let them go unless Pharaoh were compelled by a mighty hand. Now he says that Pharaoh will send them out with a mighty hand. I'd be disconcerted by that if it were me. Uh, But there's nothing made of it in the text. And in fact, when the Israelites do leave Egypt, they are thrust out of the land by the Egyptians themselves, urgently by Pharaoh. And and the Egyptians are heaping gold on them, so they end up plundering the, the Egyptians. Take it and just go. But that's the first thing that God says. Now you're going to see me in action. It's like when Martha said to the Lord back with Lazarus having died, when Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Only Martha did better than Moses here because she added, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But since since, um, God seizes... Sorry, God now seizes on the um, on the the center of Moses's little speech. He has his little tirade, "Why me?" All this stuff, but in the center of it, he said, "Ever since I came speaking in your name, all of this bad stuff has happened." Right? Well, God now seizes on that on that statement, and, and in the ne- and the next seven verses are all about the name of the Lord. That much is clear. There is a little puzzle, a rabbit that I'll chase for just a minute, but let's read it first. Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Jehovah. By the way, I'm going to do that. Um, Pronounce the tetragrammaton uh, as Jehovah, even though I'm sure that that's the wrong pronunciation. Uh, But you can see it in your Bibles. It's the word in small caps. That's a convention that's that's used is to to put the name of the Lord in small caps. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Jehovah. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, 
I am Jehovah, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Jehovah, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Jehovah. So you read that, and one thing's very clear, right? The name by which their deliverance will come is Jehovah. But you read verse 3, and it looks like there's this great reveal here, like God has never been known as Jehovah before. And I think that's clearly wrong. Now, let me say this. I am balking at a translation that is really, really old. I mean, older than the New Testament. So humility demands that I assume that I'm wrong. But at the same time, I I feel compelled to show you why I think I'm right. Or at least why I'm, it's not that I'm right, it's that I think this translation is wrong. Um, but I'll let you decide. We just came through the book of Genesis together. Turn back there, if you would, to Genesis 13. Genesis 13. Remember when Abram fled the famine? He fled the famine, he goes down to Egypt, and it's a disaster. Uh, he almost loses Sarah to, Sarai to, uh, to, to Pharaoh's harem. He was... He was learning to trust God rather than lean on his own wisdom. And this was a great moment of repentance and rekindled faith. This is a moment of growth for Abraham as he leaves Egypt and returns to the land of promise. And he came, it tells us in verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of Jehovah. That's pretty explicit. He called upon the name of Jehovah. Or how about verse 18 of the same chapter? So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to Jehovah. And in the next chapter, Abram delivers Lot, you know, and and he speaks to the king of Sodom. He refuses the king of Sodom's gifts. He says, I have lifted my hand up to Jehovah, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth. There are others, but it seems pretty clear to me that Jehovah was known as Jehovah and addressed as Jehovah long before Moses came along. And listen, the whole point of of this speech here. The whole point is continuity. Israel is not being introduced to a new God that they've never known, but they're being introduced to the God they have always known. Nothing new is being said here. Not really. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not, hey, you don't know me, but... And still at the burning bush, Exodus 3.15, God says to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, 
Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That wouldn't make any sense if they'd never heard the name. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me. I observed you. I've seen what's been done in Egypt, and I've come to deliver you. So what I hope you can appreciate then is not only did Israel know Jehovah as Jehovah, but the promises of deliverance and instructions were given explicitly in the name of Jehovah. And nothing new is presented in God's words here. And that really makes sense. What Moses needs now is encouragement. He needs reassurance, not new information about God. So I don't think verse 3 is correctly translated. I don't think it makes sense that way. But hey, it, um, it was already being read that way a long, long time ago. And who am I? So I just, you decide. What I am confident of, though, is that this, this is the completion of something old, not so much the revelation of something new. Okay, Moses has been encouraged. Now you're going to see. And he, so he goes, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken or short, their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Literally, it's because of their short spirit. But what does that mean, short spirit? Um, let's look at where this idiom is used. Turn to Job 21.4. This one sort of captures it so well. I don't know why the ESV didn't, didn't just use this. He says, as for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Likewise, in Proverbs 14, we read, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So the reason they didn't listen to Moses wasn't just because they were hurting, they were, that they were sad, a broken spirit lends that, pushes you in that direction. It wasn't just that they were sad, it's that they were impatient. And just as Moses, the, the people didn't want to listen to Moses because they were impatient, so Moses doesn't want to listen to the Lord because he's impatient. Verse 10, so the Lord said to Moses, go, tell, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. <laughs> Moses still thinks it's his job to persuade Pharaoh, apparently. I told you I'm not a good speaker. I tried, and you haven't backed me up. I'm still a bad speaker. You know, every parent knows um, the point at which further discussion with a resistant child will be fruitless. We're not always good at judging when that point is, and we often call it way too early. But sometimes, sometimes there's not time to deal with every objection that a contrary child can put up. And the Lord is once again at that point with Moses 
And just as he did at the burning bush when Moses didn't want to go at all, so now he simply commands him to go anyway. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So the action's about to break in our story. Uh, a genealogy's going to come out of nowhere next week. Uh, and there's, of course, some oddity to that, and uh, we're going to have some fun with it. But what are we supposed to take away from today's passage? Well, I think the obvious takeaway is this. What God's people, what we need most is patience. And the only way to have that is through faith. You believe in God's good character and you believe in his mighty power. And so you're willing to wait. He says that everything is working for your good. And so because you believe him, you wait for it, hopefully. Hopefully, anyway. Hopefully, you are waiting, hopefully. But, you know, the Israelites, they're going to have to be shown that God is faithful. We're going to see how ill-founded their impatience was, and all the more will we understand it now that God's faithfulness has been fully displayed uh, through the cross and the empty tomb. Another takeaway is that God likes glory. And he often waits for the moment that's going to give him the most of it. You know, like when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, but dilly-dallied so that he'd be dead. That's why we need to have patience, because God knows what he's doing. God has tied our good to his own glory. Not only does that give us strength to endure, but it also gives us a great desire to see him glorified. That's only good for us. So much so that if my endurance will bring God glory, then I will rejoice even in my sufferings as I wait. That's what faith says. But waiting's hard, isn't it? So another takeaway I'd like to point out is this. When the waiting is hard, and when our spirits begin to shorten, uh, what we need isn't something new. It's not that we need new information. What we need is to be reminded of the old promises. Sometimes a psalm you know so well never really opens up you might have loved it, but you didn't understand it really until your circumstances changed and you read it through a broken heart. The Israelites need to be reminded that God appeared to their fathers and made promises. And likewise, you and I need to be reminded that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. Sin's power has been broken. God's promises are all kept in Jesus Christ. And there are promises. He will not leave you or forsake you. He knows what you need when you need it and will provide. He removes our sin from before him as far as the east is from the west. He will vindicate you. He will right every wrong. 
In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And our Lord has prepared one for you, for your arrival. And finally, sometimes, maybe even usually, we have objections, we have doubts. Turn the other cheek? Are you kidding me? And yet, God just tells us to obey. God is going to get us through the challenges and the doubts as we grow. He's a good father. But in the meantime, he calls us, just as he calls Moses, to just keep on keeping on doing what he says to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So persevere, endure, wait, hope. It goes under a lot of different names. But that's the point. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have called us to endurance. And Father, we know that, that that, like our salvation, like our hope, like our joy, it all comes from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would grant us patience and endurance. Train us, Lord, that we might wait for you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.